Hello, Charter Folk. Jed here. Excited about today's conversation. Some of you may remember that about six weeks ago, I wrote a post which I titled The Biggest News That You Probably Haven't Heard About Yet, which was the fact that in California, we had seen a breakthrough in the language within the California Democratic Party uh, um, uh, platform. And um, I thought that it was important enough to return to this story, to understand it a little bit more so that we could perhaps spread the information across the United States and give more charter folk an opportunity for getting involved within the Democratic Party. It's actually an opportunity for all charter folk of whatever political party to be more involved in their, uh, in their party, party platforms so that we can support charter schools in a whole new way. And I thought to have a conversation on this topic, it would be terrific to have three very distinguished uh, guests. Uh, we would have Margaret Fortune from the Fortune Schools here in California. We would have Roxanne Nazario, who is a charter school parent and an advocate who has distinguished herself now for nearly a decade of work in the context of many different um, uh, advocacy organizations. And we would ask Shavar Jeffries, who is the CEO of the uh, Democrats for Education Reform at a, at a national organization to help us understand um, these developments and, and how what we've done in California might be something that we could spread to greater impact across the United States. To all of you, Margaret, Roxanne, and Shavar, thank you for being, a, for being a part of this conversation today. So, Margaret, I want to turn to you first. I described um, this breakthrough in my post in, in early April as something that was inside single A baseball. It's um, uh, something that may not be deeply understood and people may at first blush say, what's the importance here? But those of us that are close enough to it, we know just how profoundly important this is. Can you talk to me a little bit about what exactly is the California Democratic Party platform or what is the state platform in general? Uh, and why is it so important that we make progress on something like this? Jed, the party platform expresses the values of the state party, and in California, it's adopted every two years. So we just finished up work on the 2022 California Democratic Party platform. And the people who vote on the platform are uh, delegates on the state Democratic Party Central Committee. Uh, I'm a delegate on the state Democratic Party Central Committee, and uh, as I said, every two years, uh, we take a look at the platform at, and at every area from education to the environment to business to the economy and there's a process that's laid out it's a nine-month process in which delegates uh, caucuses that are a part of the democratic party structure have an opportunity to take a fresh look at the language uh, tweak the language offer up new ideas uh, and then elected officials in the state who belong to the party uh, are to align with the platform because those are the adopted values of, of the delegates. And a majority of the delegates vote to pass the platform after that nine month process of, of input and consideration. And then um, the next time the party takes a look at it is in uh, two years. So uh, that'll be in 2024. Excellent. And can you describe just a little bit about um where the party platform has been in the last couple of years and and why, in, in fact, this might be a place of opportunity for us here in, in California? So in 2019, there were um, a series of bills in California that were anti-charter bills that sought to have a charter school moratorium, that sought to 
put a cap on charter schools um, that really looked to eviscerate the charter school movement in California. Now, um, it wasn't successful, uh, although there were uh, there was legislation passed, Assembly Bill 1505, uh, that has proven to make it more difficult to open charter schools in California. Uh, but this whole kind of scale effort to eliminate charter schools was not successful. But if you look at the um, agenda that was carried in those bills, it was in alignment with the party platform uh, that set the tone for how Democratic politicians in California would go after charter schools uh, because those values were articulated in the education plank of the party platform. Um, that happened in 2018 at that, the, um, at that convention that was held in, in San Diego. And many, many of us were on the outside um, of that process, uh, literally looking in. So um, now fast forward to 2022, and a different set of values have been expressed in the party platform as it relates to charter schools. Roxanne, one of the things that's been apparent to me in California, and I think it's happening across the United States as well, is if you go into a large into a room where there are a large number of, of charter folk, charter school people, teachers, parents, board members, you name it, and you ask them what their party affiliation is, 90% of a room will raise their hand and say that they are they are Democrats. Um, and if you look at the value that is being provided to students and families, again, 90% or thereabouts are who are benefiting from charter schools are Democrats. And yet, you know, we find this disconnect between what the party platform says and the fact that Democrats are working within schools and support charter schools and parents you know, support them as well. I know that you've been working on this for a very long time. And I know that something, you know, particularly frustrating and perhaps, you know, noteworthy helped us do some learning in 2018. Can you talk? And I think that in some ways frames some, some learning that you guys uh, crystallized that then motivated your work in, on, the, uh, on the platform in the last uh, few months. Can you talk about that experience in 2018 and what you've taken from that? Yeah, definitely. You know, I was working with a group of parents and we were asked that question, you know, how many of us identify as Democrats? And, you know, again, 90 percent, you know, raised their hand and said, yes, we're Democrats. Well, did you know that this, you know, convention is taking place and this is the language that they're looking to put um, into the party? And, you know, how do you feel about that? And of course, we were all upset about that and basically felt like we were not being heard, right? We're just regular everyday Democrats that are not involved in the party. So myself and, and hundreds of parents from the area I live in in Los Angeles went down to San Diego and went to this convention um, and rallied, you know, all around. And we were on the outside and we definitely were not being heard um, or, or even really fully acknowledged. Um, the party went ahead and um, passed the platform language. And that was when we really realized that we had to do more, right? We couldn't just say, oh, we're Democrats and you should listen to us because we realized that wasn't enough. And so that was when myself and some other parents realized we need to actually get into the party and be a part of it. Um, and that was when I ran to be a delegate in my district um, the following year. So this was back in 2019. I am now currently in my second term. I certainly remember that day in San Diego in 2018. I remember you personally. I remember that huge uh, number of people from Los Angeles. We had people from San Diego. We had people from across the, the entire state come. 
and yet that recognition that basically this was a cooked thing. It was done. It was an up and down vote. And if we really wanted to influence things, we needed to be involved far, far earlier in the process. Can you tell me, Roxanne, how did you become part? How did you get on the inside? How, how does one become a delegate? Is it all through election? Is it election through appointment? Just tell me your story. And then, uh, Margaret, I also would love to hear your story, too, about how, how you formally became a delegate. Yeah, there are different ways. And so, um, you know, I was involved in the election for my assemblywoman um, who had just gotten elected. Um, whenever anybody ran for anything in my district, this group of parents that I worked with would sit and, and have a meeting with every single candidate, whether it was school board, Senate, assembly. We wanted to know who they were, uh, what they represented, how they felt about charter schools, and also for them to know who we were. Um, so I had started to build that relationship with my assemblywoman. And when it came time, uh, for the delegate elections to come up, a group of us went to her and we asked her um, point blank if she would appoint any of us. Uh, that was our first go to. You know, she said that she had already made some commitments and all of those spots were already filled. But if we wanted to run to be delegates, we definitely could do that. So I went ahead and did that. I saw her again um, at a holiday party that she had. She asked me, hey, are you going to run to be a delegate? And I said, yeah, I actually just filled out the application. She said, great. I would love for you to be on my slate. And I'm going to, you know, basically endorse you. And I was like, whoa, wow. OK, now it doesn't always happen this way for everyone. Yeah. Right. But my point of my story is it was about building a relationship with my elected official, with my assembly person. That may not always be possible. Right. Your elected official might already be someone who's very anti-charter um, or, or just not really listening to the people. Right. Thankfully, that's not my assembly woman. And I built this relationship from the beginning. So I was able to get on her slate um, and I and I ran and I was elected um, and then. My second term came around. She asked me, do I want to be a delegate again? Yes, I do. Put me on her slate again and, and won that time as well. Um, actually got the most votes out of all the delegates in my district, which was very shocking because there was a hit piece written on me about being a charter parent um, running to be a delegate, right? Which I think kind of only helped me. <laughs> so that was the way I approached it. Um, but there are definitely different ways to get in the party. Um, and of course, if you're in different states, that might work a little bit differently as well. That was my experience. Margaret, can you take us one step forward, uh, further forward? I mean, tell us also about how you became a delegate, but then also once you become a delegate, I know that there are so many different ways to get involved and so many different committees and all of those kinds of things. Uh, once you were chosen, how did you uh, prioritize participa participation within the party? Well, I came through a different door and there are three doors that you can come through in California to be a state delegate. And Roxanne has explained one of them. Uh, and I actually did uh, run and I lost. But in the process of, of running, I built relationships. And, uh, and the way I actually became a delegate is I was appointed to my county central committee. And then the county central committee elected me to be a delegate. Uh, and uh, and so that's the door I came from. Um, another way um, you can go, and Roxanne shared about this, is through the appointment route. So there, so there are three ways that you can be a state delegate. And once you get there, everybody has the same uh, authority and, and and power to do the business of the of the party. And the the business of the party is making endorsements, weighing in on the platform. Uh, you can participate in caucuses uh, at a leadership level. So when you think about the Democratic Party, there, there are different parts of the infrastructure. Uh, one is this you know, 
this board of delegates. It's a, about 3,500 people uh, that are coming from uh, the very through the various doors that we just explained. You can also be active by being a part of a caucus. Um, I'm active in the Black Caucus. Now, anybody can be a member. Any Democrat could go on the California Democratic Party website, CADEM, uh, C-A-D-E-M dot org, and pay their $30 and sign up for the Black Caucus. Uh, and that makes you a, a participant in the party. There are other uh, caucuses. There's the Latino Caucus, the Labor Caucus, the Children's Caucus that weighs in on education issues. Lots of different caucuses for every um, interest that you can imagine. Uh, that's a part of the infrastructure of the Democratic Party. Now, if you want to be a leader on the executive board of one of those caucuses, well, then you need to be a delegate. But anybody who's a Democrat can participate and let their voice be heard. Uh, the other way to get involved is through a, a Democratic club. Um, that's also a part of the infrastructure. And you'll see if you participate in your county central committees, which again are open meetings, um, that clubs get recognized to give reports and that type of thing. Um, so that's the, the, the breadth of, of different ways to get involved. Uh, and once you get involved, it's really about you hitting the ground running, building coalitions, and letting your voice be heard because the Democratic Party is about process. Uh, it respects its processes. So back in 2018 in San Diego, we were coming in at the end of a process that had been well-established uh, that had been going on for months before we ever arrived. There was a, a system of hearings where people who had an interest in, in uh, the platform had already testified. And by the time we got there as kind of outraged charter school supporters, <laughs> it was at the end of the process. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how anti-charter school language got into the platform. And that anti-charter school language look like saying, we only support a very narrow sliver of charter schools, uh, those that are uh, dependent upon school districts. And in other words, not independent char charter schools, and the vast majority of charter schools are independent. Uh, only charter schools that supplement rather than supplant what's happening in public education. Well, those of us who are in public education recognize that language from Title I, right? If you already have a school counselor, you can't use your Title I money to hire another one because that would be that would be supplanting as opposed to supp supplementing. But what we know in charter schools is that oftentimes it's not that we're teaching kids rocket science, although some of you are. Um, mm. it's, it's the execution of the basic academic program that you'll see in neighborhood schools that is done better in a charter school and where you're getting better results for kids that are living in poverty uh, um, or black and brown kids. So it's not that the program is so original, but it's that the program is well implemented and, and you have a, a, a series of best practices all in one place. But under that old platform language, even if that was true, which it is in many cases, the Democrats would be against it. So as a Democrat, I'm, I've been a lifelong Democrat. I've served in Democratic administrations in California. Um, it was puzzling to me why Democrats would be against charter schools, given that Democrats are the ones that started it in the first place. And the, the key is that the party is not honing in on general public opinion among Democrats. It's about what people 
who are participating in the process, who are political insiders, think about a particular issue. And if you're on the inside of any political party, usually those views um, tend to be uh, more, uh, if it's a, if the Democratic Party, uh, more to the left than moderate, uh, even if the population voting tends to be more moderate. So the, the views are a little more extreme. And, uh, and so the, the value of getting involved is in having a seat at the table. Um, and you have authority to have a voice, even though people will, within the party, behave as if you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you actually do. And, right. and you're there for a reason, and you've got standing to have a point of view. Standing. I love that. So, Shavar, would you mind um, sharing some national perspective on this? I think that um, I myself am not familiar with us having done work like this in in any other state. Um, And it's why I've been so excited about the progress that I've seen in California. I also think that it's an opportunity for us, um, but we would have to start thinking about this as a priority and um, and really supporting people who might choose to do this this kind of work. Um, so what national perspective do you have to share on, on whether or not this is happening and what we could be doing to support it more to the extent that you would see it as a, as a valuable activity along those lines? Yeah, I think it's great what Margaret uh, and uh, Roxanne and what folks in California are doing. I mean, I think the more we can have uh, you know, grassroots, bottom-up engagement in the party apparatus, uh, engagement in the political process, running candidates for office, running candidates um, for positions within the party, uh, the more influence we can build over time. Um, I don't think there's much in the way throughout the country um, of work in this effort. I mean, we have a program we call our Leaders of Color program, which recruits community-based uh, folks of color who support education reform and educational equity values. Uh, to uh, run for down ballot positions and then work their way up. Some bypass down ballot and run for prominent positions. And in a couple of places, we have people who are in the party apparatus. You know, we have a person who's uh, chair of their county's Democratic Party. We have another person who's chair of their local municipal uh, Democratic Party. So we've taken some baby steps in this. Uh, but I think it's very valuable, uh, particularly for state and local based advocates uh, to figure out ways to, to 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 build more political power, particularly in certain cities that have outsized influence, because you can build influence uh, pretty fast. Um, I think it's important to couple the internal activity within the party, which I think is is um, very helpful, very productive, um, with running people um, for key uh, key uh, positions uh, of electoral influence in those communities. Uh, so we had a strategy in certain states uh, that. Uh, sought to um, build significant influence and even take over uh, the Democratic Party apparatus in key municipalities or in key counties and coupling that with running people for key positions, whether it's key municipal positions, mayors, it's key legislative positions, um, you know, county-based positions. um, That sort of political foundation could then be leveraged to create more support for charters and educational equity and reform more broadly throughout the state. Uh, so I really applaud the fact that we see these grassroots efforts. You know, again, we do see in, in other pockets of the country a variety of different um, hyper-local efforts to build political power. Some of them involve 
engagement in the political activity uh, uh, within the mechanisms of the Democratic Party. Some involve other um, local um, kind of down ballot uh, entities. So in some cities like New York, you have community boards, um, you have equivalent type boards in places like D.C. Um, and we see a lot of efforts of local charter advocates to begin to put people in a position who support our values. Uh, so I think we need more of it. And I think the degree to which we tie it to strategies to build hard political influence with you know, hard side investments and independent expenditure investments over a period of years, we could really uh, build a kind of sustainable infrastructure that uh, will support what we're doing for kids over the long term. Shafar, we're filming this in the week after we have seen um, about a thousand plus parents show up in Washington to express their frustration with these proposed CSP regs and the moral authority that these parents from across the country have spoken with is registering in ways that I think we've, we've never seen before. And one of the things that I've um, been pushing myself in terms of my own work is to figure out how to provide more authentic opportunities for people's true voice and true power to be uh, expressed. And I, I would definitely say that it, our movement um, screwed this up in the beginning. And there was a lot of, hey, let's let's go to parks and let's, you know, hold signs, you know, in in settings where it wasn't necessarily clear what the connection was between the moment and power. Now, this week, I think or last week, I think we did a better job. And I think people understood the connection between let's go to the White House and these regs. Right. Um, but there are all sorts of other things for our base to get involved with where people have have voice. They have, as Margaret just said, standing. Um, is there is this an, an opportunity for us as you know, people leave the White House and are ready to go back home and they're charged up to do the next thing? Is this the playbook that we should be ready to hand to people saying, here's something tangible, specific in your local communities? It's all there for you to go toward it. Um, uh, or is it or or is it not exactly the right moment to do something like that? I'd love just your general thoughts on on where we are in terms of giving our base really tangible things to be working on. Yeah, I think it's always the right time to fight uh, for our kids and for our schools. And I think we could absolutely leverage what we've seen uh, coming out of the uh, regulatory process in DOE and out of the White House to make a clear point. If you're not involved, this is what happens, right? This is what you have to deal with, right? So rather than being in a reactionary space, let's proactively build political power for our agenda. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel um, in our democracy, um, you know, uh, interest groups, communities, um, have engaged in the political process uh, for you know, well over 200 years that our country has been here in order to build influence for their issues. So I would say for those who went to D.C. in your local communities, examine the political landscape. Uh, there may be some actors already in your community doing some political work around charters and education reform and equity. Plug in, right? In your local community, are there challenges? Are there barriers? Um, you know, uh, uh, both that on the negative side or are there issues or constraints that that preclude us from getting to the next level in terms of what we're here to do for children if they are you go run right you become the mayor you become the school board president you become the assembly you become the governor right for those in local communities do we have a political apparatus to support people to run so this is our day-to-day -day work it's one thing to say go run and the opponent who fills out what the charter opponents want them to fill out they have 40 endorsements from the door 
They have six figures worth of investments. They got 50 people who can phone bank for them in GOTV. They got 75 people who can do a coffee clutch for them. They have nine council people because they're all part of a network, so they all endorse each other. They got you know, multiple council people, multiple legislators, former governors, uh, prominent CBOs, the Urban League, the NAACP, and we say good luck. <laughs> right? So we have to build a comparable infrastructure right, so that they can actually have a fighting chance. So that means when you go back to your communities, if you have relationships with donors, and they say, well, I really just want to support what's going on in the school. I don't want to be political. It's too late for that. Once you've divided to invest in a public charter schools, which we know are public, which is why we call them public, but you know what it means when you're public? You're using the people's money. If you're using the people's money, you have to engage in a process through which the people decide how to spend their money. So you can't want to leverage it, but then I don't want to be involved. So if you're if you're on the board of a public charter school, you're an investor in a public charter school, you must invest in the politics. And if you don't, then don't be, wonder why you're going to continue to have regs that come out. You're going to continue to have moratoria. You're going to have to continue to have facts. So so I, I, we have to have the real talk with folks to say we need people to run. We need people to engage. But let's stop sending our people into not just gun. These are gunfights. These are like AK. This is like you just. Well, let me not go too far. I was about to say Normandy. I'm going too far with that. So I'm not trying to go that far. But I'm saying you're, you're walking into a firefight, right? That's how right. that's how people play politics. This isn't something about your PowerPoint and they shouldn't do this and they should be nice. They come for the neck because their interests are at stake. We have interests. So we have to arm our candidates, arm our community-based organizations, arm our advocacy organization with the resources that'll give us a fighting chance to sustain this for the 25, 50, 100 years that we'll need uh, to really get our kids to where we want them to be. Thank you, Shavar. So Roxanne, I wanna pick up where we left off um, in terms of the California story. I found it fascinating. You found a way to be elected, despite the fact that you were pre-identified as a charter folk, you are elected anyway. You get on the inside, you're probably now labeled as a charter folk, but uh, you and Margaret and, and others, I know that we're partnering with you, built allies and built influence within the process. Can you talk to me about what you did once you were in on the inside and um, and how you built a, a sense of mo momentum toward the policy uh, progress we've been talking about? Yeah, I can definitely introduce it. And I think Margaret can go more in detail as well. Um, but basically, I stayed under the radar for as long as I possibly could. So my whole first term as a delegate nobody really knew I was a charter school person. Um, I didn't go in and announce that when I went into a room or joined a caucus or something, right? Um, I was very, you know, um, just paid attention to, to the people around me. And when I could have one-off conversations with certain people, I did. And I had some uncomfortable conversations with people um, about charter schools as far as why they didn't support them and why I chose them for my daughter and why um, in the area that I live in, um, these are the best options for kids. And, and that's the truth. And this is a real story from a real parent, which is the, the main reason why I joined the party, because they weren't hearing us. They weren't listening to the people actually in the communities on the ground, parents who were choosing charter schools. Why? There's a reason, right? So, you know, that first term, I was basically getting a feel for everything. Um, I was able to get on the voter services committee, um, not the platform committee. I was part of caucuses, the Chicano Latino caucus, women's caucus, children's caucus, and was just really getting a feel for it, but I was kind of by myself, you know, 
There was another um, charter school parent from my district that also ran to be a delegate and she was elected as well. So we kind of had that connection. But then when I came into my second term, that was when I was definitely identified as this is a charter school person. Um, I, I connected with Angelica and um, some other folks that were recently appointed, like uh, Margaret, and they said, hey, we want to talk about, you know, changing this platform language. I'm like, this is the whole reason why I ran. This is the whole reason why I became a delegate, but I can't do it by myself. So I was so happy um, to hear that I had some allies and people that I could work with. Um, and about a year ago, we started that effort together. But um, I think Margaret would be better off sharing some of the details of how that all got started. Well, that's a good um, introduction. Please, uh, Margaret, take it from there. Sure, Jed. I, I want to say that the activity that just went on in D.C. around the, the charter school program at the national level and the language that was requiring um, a charter applicant to get sign-off from a school district in order to um, apply for the grant and prove that there's a need. And, and this language, the, as of the taping of this show, this language is still in place, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the Biden administration has not withdrawn this language. But this idea that in order to be a charter school that Democrats support, that um, you have to prove that somehow there's a, a, a decline in enrollment in a district. And therefore, that's the reason why this charter school is necessary. Um, that you have to speak to community impact. All of that language came from California, which is why it's important to weigh in on the on the platform because the platform is is the root of that. It it, it has the values that that Democrats will then prolifer proliferate in the form of legislation. So, um, as soon as you become an elected delegate, um, and as soon as you become active in any way, like, you know, what should the people who are just in DC from California do? Go on the cadem.org and pay your $10 to be a part of the Children's Caucus. Because the Democratic Party is a very diverse place. The only kind of diversity that it doesn't have is diversity of thought, <laughs> right? But you'll, you'll find that one thing that people won't sacrifice, the, to ideology is their own children. So while people sit through these conversations where, where people are expressing an ideology that says that you ought not have a choice of where you send your child to school, that the only legitimate choice is to send your, your child to a, the neighborhood school, even if the neighborhood school is not well run, like that's fine for everybody who actually doesn't have to make that, don't have to make that kind of choice. But, but you find in these conversations, and these conversations that you have within the party are about building relationships. They're, how, they're had over time, over a long period of time. It's mm -hmm. about getting to know people. Uh, and our conversation in the platform was not about charter schools, it was about the welfare of black children. And the people who brought forward this conversation were black people in the black caucus because this quote unquote progressive platform didn't say a word about black children. It talked about other children, but it didn't say that black children were a priority in terms of closing achievement gaps. It didn't say that black children were a priority in terms of advocating for additional financial resources from the state. 
It didn't even say that black children were a, a, a priority when it comes to uh, infant mortality rates, which is actually something that, that the Biden administration's Health and Human Services uh, administration is all over. So this was a platform that was even out of alignment with the deal that the supermajority in the Democratic legislature of California and the governor signed off on in terms of what kind of charter schools we support. So it was the Black Caucus that introduced language that said, if you're the parent or guardian of a Black student, we ought to support whatever option you choose for your child within the public school system, whatever alternative. That's not controversial to your everyday Californian. It's only controversial in circles of people who are out of touch with the reality of what it means to attend a low performing school. I'm not out of touch with that because I attended one. <laughs> I attended a low performing school in Inglewood, California. And it was very clear to me what the difference was between the quality of my education at that high school and the quality of education that other kids who were my peers were getting. And it was clear to me because I then went to another school because my father changed jobs. And I saw, my goodness, in this school, we have the same textbooks, but the quality of teaching is much different. So the focus within, the, within this language is first, first, platform language has changed incrementally. We didn't make huge, dramatic changes. That doesn't happen. But we added Black students to every part of the platform where some other group of students was talked about, and rightfully so, as a subject of advocacy for the Democratic Party in the ways I've just described. Closing achievement gaps for Black students, advocating for more resources for Black students, you know, paying attention to uh, infant mortality rates for Black students, paying attention to um, uh, um, maternal uh, mortality rates for Black women. All of this stuff was never in the platform before, and it is now because of this advocacy. Now, what did the opponents of reform focus on, even though all of that language is in the platform? They focused on one itty bitty sentence that acknowledged that charter schools are public schools by simply calling them that, which now the Democratic Party acknowledges. A majority of Democrats agree in the idea of public charter schools. And they also agree that the party ought to support public charter schools especially in cases they should expand, they should actually support the expansion of charter schools where black native american english learners students with special needs low income students are facing achievement gaps mm -hmm. but that's a legitimate space for charter schools to come in with the support of the democratic party and do better by this group of students that's what the language says so Shame on you for the people who stood up and said, to protect the interest of adults, we don't want black kids or any other kids in need to have another chance. Mm -hmm. Not only did they say that, they said, let us vote against the entire platform based on a few sentences about public charter schools. I want to get to that. I really want the backstage pass there, and I would love for our world to, to hear it directly from you guys. I am looking at the language that um, you guys got changed as it relates to charter schools, and I see that 
we're really talking about about 11 or 12 words that got changed. Plus then this additional statement about a priority for those charter schools that are providing services to the range of students you've talked about. But these words were extremely artfully chosen. Uh, and so I just compliment you on that because people I think may think that there's just so much change that needs to be hap needs to happen. But if you're really strategic and you focus on, on exactly the right language within the platform, just relatively minor changes can tip the entire platform from one that is just rapidly anti-charter to one that is much more neutral. So congratulations. And, you know, I, I, do, I do point that out. But I wonder, Roxanne, can you can you bring us to this point to where this drama happened? Um, so there we were in 2018. It was all it was all cooked. We had this very hostile platform that was being voted on. We were asking people at the last second to change it. Um, I think that it was a very different circumstance this year that you guys in your work had gotten language into the final vote that um, uh, then basically um, other delegates within the party had had two choices, either vote the entire thing down um, over 30 words related to charter schools or allow, you know, something to go forward that reflects, you know, just months and months of work coming from thousands and thousands of people. Can you just give us a little bit of the backstage pass? What was that like? I, I wasn't there. I would have loved to have been there. Um, tell me what was that like? Well, that was all virtual. Um, that was not done in person. You know, originally this convention, they had finally thought we were going to do one in person um, in March. And then due to, you know, the wave that was still there, um, COVID from the winter, they decided to go virtual. So things might have been different if it had been in person. I, I, I do want to mention that. Um, but basically, it was it was the roles were reversed in the way that now they were coming late to the party, right? Like we had followed the process step by step. There was, like Margaret said, a series of hearings, several hearings that took place um, in the end of 2021 and they were throughout the state, they were all virtual. So regardless of where you lived, you know, anybody could attend. And even if you were in Los Angeles County, you could attend, you know, one of these platform um, hearings for another county, right? If that was what worked best for you. And you could show up and you could give your testimony and said what you supported and what you didn't. And, and we did, and we showed up and regular everyday um, democratic parents, um, community members, you know, showed up and gave their testimony and supported the Black Caucus language. Um, and so we went through this whole process of months and then the platform committee met at convention they went back they revised some things and then all of a sudden here we are the last day ready to vote and now you know people are complaining about it and saying that their voices aren't being heard right um which was kind of us in 2018 but this time we were we were part of the party we followed the process we did everything the way we were supposed to but people were very clearly upset and they were and it was a small it was it was very much a smaller um uh, group of people um but they were definitely making their voices heard in any way they could and um and were willing to throw out the entire platform the platform committee has put in months and months and months all volunteer nobody gets paid for this you know of hearings every single weekend during the week um, platform meetings that took place, just them, you know, and it's not just the education platform language, right? There's all different planks of the platform language. They did all of this work and you had a group of, I want to say the number in my head is like 481 people that were willing to vote completely against all of that 
just for one particular bullet point that they didn't like about charter schools that actually represented charter schools in an accurate way rather than the language that they used that made charter schools sound you know negative right is and i yeah. think it literally even came down to margaret might remember exactly one word that really really triggered them um about the the boards of charter schools and um it was amazing it was amazing that they were even the uh the environmental you know climate change language that was in there they were willing which is very important right they claim to the party that's very important they were willing to throw that all out over one bullet about charter schools. It's fascinating. So yeah. I want to, I, Shavar, I want to come back to you in just, just a second. Um, I also want to use some of your language about, hey, we can't, you know, bring uh, a knife, you know, to a gunfight. Um, and a lot of what we're trying to do here at Charter Folk is what I call naivete busting. Uh, we just don't understand uh, exactly the forces that are coming against us and how extreme these forces uh, voice opinions in settings that they believe are private or not closely watched. And I will just say that the language that uh, the opponents to the charter language used in the last stages of the Democratic uh, Party convention adoption um, should be broadcast everywhere. Our world should understand that when the chips are on the table and and basically these public employee unions want to stop this language. The things they will say about our the charter schools are absolutely horrific. And then a month later, they will go to some other setting and try and present themselves as always having been a supporter of you know, charter schools and all this kind of stuff. So it's another reason why I want to get our world closer, you know, so people can see this stuff with their own eyes. Um, but be before I come back to you, Shavar, just one last thing, Margaret, I remember in, in immediately um, talking um, after this, you shared that you believe that the general performance of public education in California um, had been so frustrating to so many people in California and to many Democrats and, and delegates that allowed something to get done right now that might not have been able to get been, happened, you know, just a little while ago. Can you talk about how just the perception of the performance of public education right now may be opening up new opportunities for progress uh, as you guys achieved? Well, I think everybody sat at their kitchen table with their kids during the pandemic and got a real up close and personal view of what their kids' school was all about um, because we relied on parents uh, during distance learning to help deliver the academic program. It, that there's a problem that needs to be fixed has never been lost on black people. In California, 67% of black students don't read or write at grade level and 78% don't do mathematics at grade level and well over 80% aren't at grade level in science. So our Silicon Valley economy that we lead the world in is not something that black kids are actually being prepared for by our public school system. So, uh, you know, black people always have had our eyes open about that. And I think the pandemic opened others eyes to that as well, who may not have been as acutely aware. But I think what you said about there are extreme forces within the Democratic Party who actually expect to be at the table, even if they don't follow the process and expect their way, even if they don't follow the process. And one thing that I have to respect the California Democratic Party for is they stood up for the process and said, where were you? Because what we're not going to do is to cut a backroom deal for you and tell all of these parents, community members, civil rights groups that participated in this process 
for nine months and showed up at six hearings uh, again and again and again that because you all are the insiders that oftentimes pay the bills within the Democratic Party, that your voice matters more than theirs. Now, whether or not they would have come to that same conclusion before the racial reckoning, I don't know. But it's the conclusion that the party came to now. And so why does it matter? It matters not just for the charter school language, uh, because quite honestly, that wasn't the main point. The main point was around doing something to improve the experience of Black students in school. So now, because of that language that said, we're going to advocate for more resources for Black students in California, uh, Assemblymember Keely Weber out of San Diego is authoring Assembly Bill 2774 uh, that Fortune School of Education and others are the, is the sponsor of. And it would generate an additional $400 million a year for the students who are the lowest performing subgroup that are not already getting supplemental funding. And there's one group of students that falls into that category and that's black students. And it sailed through the Assembly Education Committee. In prior years when the platform did not have black students as a priority, that bill didn't even get a hearing in 2019, but it did. And it not only got a hearing, uh, it, got, it was passed by the Assembly Education Committee 7-0. It's currently in the Appropriations Committee and headed to the Assembly floor. So the platform does matter because a conversation happened inside of the Democratic Party about how we're going to treat Black students, uh, that the process that we followed was the platform process, but the conversation that happened within the party drove Democrats within the government to do something different. And yes, mm -hmm. a lot of controversy centered around the charter school language, but again, that wasn't the point. The point is Black student achievement. And mm -hmm. the conversation got centered in, in, in that in such a way that, quite frankly, our state superintendent of public instruction, who I hadn't spoken to since uh, the negotiations over those charter school bills I referenced earlier, now we're on the same page. And he's a co-sponsor of the bill, AB 2774, to get Black students more funding. So there is a reason to be involved uh, in the Democratic Party, if you're a Democrat. Um, and what it is not about is the money at this stage. It's about your time, it's about your persistence, and it's about your clarity of thought mm -hmm. about what needs to happen and using the processes and the mechanisms within the party to articulate that thought into policy and values. Shavar, I have a particular question for you, but at different times I've seen you um, respond to what Roxanne and Margaret were saying. Do, do you have observations to share about what you've heard in the last five to 10 minutes from Roxanne and, and Margaret before I get to my question? Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think the points that Margaret and Roxanne made are very well taken. I mean, the only point I want to make is, um, you know, because I think some of the rhetoric isn't fully consistent with the Democratic Party that we work within. Um, so is there a fight? The, the Democratic Party is a very diverse party has a lot of diversity of thought. Charters tend to be disproportionately located in places run by Democrats, Democratic mayors, Democratic governors, Democratic school board members, Democratic legislators. Is there a huge fight within the party on choice and accountability? Absolutely. Uh, but there's a very large number of Democrats who support the issue. I mean, of course, we know the polls show the majority of the, the actual voters support us. Um, the challenge comes in with the mechanics of winning elections. I mean, that's if we cut through a lot, that's where it is. Right. We haven't done the 
work yet to actually pull people out to the polls in specific elections. Those who oppose the charters, they've been doing that for a long period of time. So you have this asymmetry between the realities of what's required to win elections um, and where many people are on the issue. But you know, whether it's Eric Adams or you know Muriel Bowser or Governor Polis or hundreds and hundreds of people we work with, there's a significant number of folks within the party who embrace these values. Um, it's a much larger group who are involved in the political process. I mean, the voters are kind of a silent majority, but there's a much larger group of people who oppose the charters who are actively engaged in the, uh, you know, in the nuts and bolts of hard side uh, bundling, independent expenditure investments, GOTV work, endorsements, um, volunteers, um, uh, et cetera, the kind of hard assets to win races. That's our biggest gap. And I want to continue to re-emphasize that because when, you, when we have these ideological conversations, we could think that's where the issue is. That is not where the issue is. The issue is with the mechanics. It's a battle. It's a fight, right? You don't play a football game and just say, I hope they just let us win. You actually got to have a strategy and you got to execute it. But when it comes to politics, that's where we're, um, uh, you know, um, too much at the early stages out of the gate. And we really got to get to where we want to get fast. And once we get there, we're going to see a whole lot more wins than we've seen um, up to now. So my question for you, because I think it's it comes down to are our advocacy organizations able to support people who may be interested in becoming delegates? I know that in California, we would discover at different times 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that we had low hanging fruit. My goodness, why don't we get our world working on various things? Um, you start to work in that, you get in the game, you win, but then you have your people in their places of, of influence and then they're not supported enough. I know like school district board members, when we got, you know, they're there or county board members, they, they're they there and they're like, okay, I'm now I, what do I do, right? And they're getting attacked from different people. And, and then we at CCSA and others weren't as effective in supporting those people in that moment. And I can see the same thing happening, you know, with delegates now. We, they get into these settings. They know that they can have influence. They know charter school issues and other issues fairly well. But at the depth that we're talking about with Roxanne and Margaret, uh, not at that level. And they would need the kind of support to be effective. So what is the role of, of you know, advocacy organizations in doing a better job of supporting people taking work like this? And then if you wouldn't mind just also... Can you just talk a little bit about just national dynamics, national platform? And, and uh, I know it's probably a very long ways away until we can have this kind of influence on the Democratic National Party platform. But maybe if we do our work right within 10 years, we have so many people that are doing this kind of work that, hey, you've got a whole new uh, cadre of folks to work with to have influence. So um, however you want to respond to those you know, multifaceted questions, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I would say on the support piece, that's absolutely essential. Um, there's no question about that. So you need a, a lot of support that I've talked a fair amount about in terms of what it takes to win elections and you're gonna need equivalent support afterwards. You know, I saw this as myself. Now, you know, I ran many years ago before we, we still don't have enough infrastructure, we have absolutely none when I ran <laughs> in Jersey. Yeah. So I'm the president of the school board and I'm trying to push a lot, you know, choice accountability, just two of many other issues trying to push a lot. And those who are opposed, they're very organized. They're bringing hundreds of people to the school board meetings. They're dropping op-eds on you. You go to the church, somebody's getting in the pulpit talking about charter schools and the rich people who want to privatize, the council people who are connected to the ecosystem talking about rich people they want to privatize, um, you know, other, uh, you know, faith-based and other community-based leaders. And we didn't have anything. 
right? And then you're a volunteer, right? I'm a volunteer in this position. I got to work full time. And then you, you walk out into this firefight. So it's the same with people within the party. Now, it's, it may not have the same public piece that you have in elected positions, right, where it's a much broader platform that you have to manage. Um, you know, and, and look, I want to be frank, too. I mean, these I think these documents are important. They're important. They signal things. And absolutely at the national level, and I'm sure in these states. It's also the case, to be frank, it's not often that a lot of legislators are looking back to the platform in terms of what they're doing on a weekend and, and month out basis. Generally speaking, I can't speak for California. Maybe that's different there. Generally speaking, they do the document. It's almost like a big op-ed, if you will. And that's important, right, because it sends a signal. But when they're doing their their week in and week out work, it's the, it's the mechanics of lobbying. Who's in front of them? Who's bringing pressure? Who's bringing interest to bear? Um, so I say all that to say um, that absolutely, if we're going to send people, if we're going to have a strategy around getting people in the party apparatus, there has to be an equivalent strategy to support them when they're there. To your other question, Jed, about at the national level, you know, um, again, it will require significant resource investment across a large number of states. Because within the party, when you get to the national uh, platform process, um, there's the delegates from all over the country. Then you have the party apparatus. So whoever happens to be the party chair, and there's a bunch of, and the party chair has a certain capacity to pick certain people to send as delegates as well. The presidential nominee tends to have the biggest um, stick in that process. So in the past, we've tended to try to influence that as much as we can with $15 million when people are spending hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So you see you're outdone. But we tended to try to see if we can find a, a center left type person influence and, and use that influence, we can have you know more significant influence. However, if we as a sector said, you know what, if we can't do 50 states, let's pick the top 10 or 12 that'll have disproportionate influence. And we want to have a strategy over each cycle to get X number of delegates into the apparatus so that they can then bring that to bear. That would be very, very helpful. So the mm -hmm. same strategy Margaret and Roxanne are having to say, hey, you know what, let's build this um, uh, you know, a beachhead within the Democratic Party in the state and then leverage that to move policy. Um, if we do that in enough states, that can absolutely have the downstream consequence that if we had six or seven or eight of some of the biggest states, and then California is a huge bellwether state within the party. You know, we pick the right states with the right investments. I think that could be that could be significant. I will say this for me, I would want that secondary to the electoral piece. So I think we can get more policy done faster. But if we have the resources to do that, I think this would be a great complement to that. I love it. I'm going to let Margaret wrap us up here. Um, uh, I will say to you, Shavar, that um, I will keep beating on this drum, 25 by 25 by 25. We want 25 state associations uh, by 2025 that are providing $25 per student in membership dues to their state associations so that the advocacy organizations have the heft to support people to do a wide variety of things. Yes, on candidates and yes on the other stuff, but I think a part of it also is to support de delegates who choose to get involved in their political parties. Um, and I think it's within our capacity because the key thing that we have right now is we have charter folk. We saw this in Washington. People are willing to do it. They are willing to do it, but they must be supported. Margaret, wrap us up. If we look to the future, you've you've accomplished something very important. And and Roxanne, thank you for everything that you you did as a part of all of this. What's the future? What are the next steps uh, as we as we think about this work going forward? What's next is we continue our engagement and we talk about what the new platform has in it. 
Um, yes, the charter piece, but also the piece about um, black students, because for me, that is the main point, because we all come to this work with multiple identities. Uh, and that's the, the foot I lead with is, is my membership in the black community. And the chartering piece is a tool to get to what um, we want, which is um, excellent uh, academic achievement and a great experience for black kids in school. Um, the next steps are talking about the changes that have been made to this platform with those who are responsible for implementing it, implementing it and also sharing the values. Um, our next steps are to have policy, and I've described one of them, AB 2774, uh, that is in alignment with this platform that we've just adopted. Uh, and um, a next step is to elect elected officials that are in alignment with the values of the party. Um, and we'll be here in 2024 uh, when those who weren't paying attention this time uh, want to come back and, and um and take us back to where we were in the past to defend, uh, we'll be there to defend the gains that we've made. So in my view, those are our next steps. Well, you can count on me here at Charter Folk to continue to highlight extraordinary accomplishments and contributions coming from a wide range of, of folks and to give new ideas about how we can be even more effective with our advocacy efforts in the future. So uh, to all of you guys, all three of you across your careers, what you've done already, simply unbelievable. Thank you for it. Um, but also I have to say, I have a huge sense of excitement. Uh, it's a challenging environment. It's a challenging environment, but People ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Just keep going, folks, and know that Charter Folk is always at your back. Thanks for, so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.